things like SLOs, continuous delivery, how we do canaries, etc., are all just a way of us to test in production. We want to get people excited about good observability tooling. One thing that we do recognize is that the developer experience isn't necessarily great for what observability looks like, and that's something we really want to improve on. So how do we make it easier for developers to ask new questions from their systems? Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. I think having introduced new practices and, and having actually talked about things like SLOs and observability in smaller organizations has been a lot easier. When you're suddenly in an organization of 5,000-ish engineers, all kind of working remotely. Larger than the town that I grew up in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's working remotely now as well, and that affects the effective dissemination of information in the org it gets a lot harder and there's only so much information you can kind of throw at people in terms of blogs or webinars or any other kind of training material. At this point, it kind of starts becoming about how we can make it easier for them to do the right thing or what we think is the right thing. Right. And not so much kind of incentivizing not so good practices, mm. I guess. It's about great defaults, creating great defaults so they automatically do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And having worked in, I think, dev tools before, that's exactly the place that you kind of want. You want to give them the best thing first. And if they do want to do what you think is the wrong thing or what I think is the wrong thing, you let them do it, but not by default. Well, you've been engaged in doing this over the past year, right? I mean, you came on to Atlassian about a year ago, I guess. Like, what was the state of the team when you got there? Like, what were the initial challenges that you got dropped into? The initial challenges were kind of understanding the observability landscape in the organization. So we kind of break things up into how we collect all this telemetry, how we actually process it through. I think we have like pipelines that this goes through. We sanitize things that we think aren't right for kind of throwing into different vendors, buckets and, and things like that. So we want to keep things as safe as possible as well and kind of strip out unsafe data, which tends to happen. And we do have like a regulatory responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. Sure. Yeah. One question I had for you is if you can kind of centrally mandate what those good defaults are, right? Like that works great. What happens if you need to grassroots influence rather than uh, being able to come in with a gold standard? So we currently have a saying in the team in terms of like influencing grassroots style. So with some of the newer stuff we're working on, we do have a saying in the team called sell the sizzle, not the sausage, <laughs> as we like to say. So we want to get people excited about all the new kind of functionality or new opportunities that come up from good observability tooling and what developers can actually infer from the data that they do throw in, so to say. Mm. So as you're saying, right, like it's about the results you can achieve and not about the process mm. and kind of the sausage of making it. I yeah. love that. <laughs> How did you go about figuring out where to start? So where to start is understanding the problem at hand. And for us, a one thing that we do recognize is that the developer experience isn't necessarily great 
for what observability looks like. And that's something we really want to improve on. So how do we make it easier for developers to to ask new questions from their systems? How do we actually make it easier for them to say, oh, I'm in an incident. What can I look at to actually understand what's going on, what's breaking? And, and what was the answer that you came up with for them? So we've kind of gone all in on open telemetry as a standard. And, and nice. as part of that, we have kind of worked on so like safe default, so assuming a, a good data model from the ground up and saying, cool, this is the information we think is most important. So what kind of information can we actually grab out of our SDK? So we're like auto-wiring stuff into our Java apps and whatnot, and what can we actually pull in on their behalf? Yeah, the more you can make things consistent, the more things you can make work out of the box, the easier that people see the value rather than having to figure out which one of these five fields name, service name is correct. Yeah. Service underscore name, service name. Right. All of these developers are writing code. It's not their job to make good observability. It's their job to solve problems for customers, right? And to the extent that you can make it easy and magical and automatic for them to get the observability, then you, you can open their eyes and see how much better that makes them at their jobs. But it's really asking a lot to ask anyone to do two jobs, to occupy two or three or more, you know, positions on a team if you have a team of 5,000 developers, right? Yeah, especially because we really kind of, we value that you build it, you own it kind of DevOps philosophy. Nice. I love that. But you also don't want to make people feel dumb when they're working with particular systems. And that's right. that's something I've experienced a lot in the past is I'm working with something new. Uh, I'm trying to query data. I'm trying to get it out of this weird new system that I'm working. It makes me feel so dumb. Just kind of being like, I don't know how to get any of this information. Yeah, because you're not in it every day. Yeah. So now would be the time for you to introduce yourself. Sure. I am Jordan Simonovsky. I am an engineer at Atlassian. Um, so I work in the observability team and we're shipping some cool new stuff at work which we'll probably get talked about one day once it's all done. <laughs> um, but yeah. So tell us a little about the journey of the observability team at Atlassian, right? Like, are you building your own stuff? Are you kind of interacting to piece things together? Kind of how did that model come together? So as part of having engineering tenants in the team, we do want to rely on people that build stuff that people whose job it is to build out these really good kind of solutions and tools for things and for us to kind of piece it together. It's, I think one of Charity's recent blogs was saying kind of, I don't want to be scooping buckets of water out of the ship. I kind of want to make sure the ship is going where it needs to. And so focusing on the one thing, which is providing a better experience for our devs is not something where I think we would necessarily say, yes, we want to build our own TSDBs and, right. and things like that. Um, we kind of want to leverage the things that are out there already. Right. I'm so glad that this is a sea change that has finally taken over most of the industry. Like, so glad. Like, I remember five years ago, even, it was still very much up for debate. And I think that now, like, the build versus buy. It was this badge of pride, right? Like, people were like, you know, I'm the next Uber, I'm the next Google, I have my <laughs> own TSDB. Well, and I think that, you know, as technologists, we love our technology, you know? And, you know, like, I've told this story before, but, like, I fucking fought it tooth and nail when they wanted to go outsource mail to, to Gmail. I was like, I ran PostFix, I ran ClamIV antivirus, I ran, you know, Mailman, I ran, I trained my own spam filters, I could tail dash F my own, like, Cyrus IMAP and get my own, I could grab through my mail spool. I fucking miss those days. All right. But like, I have come around to the view that what I want is for my business to succeed, which means that that is not where my time is best spent. But I think that for all of us, especially when we've done it really well, and we know that 
there is a bit of a loss when you give up that control. There is some loss. You, you lose some control over your destiny. You have to learn to fit yourself into like the mold that everyone else, you have to become like everyone else as a user, right? And like, I feel like it's dishonest to not admit that, you know, yeah, there is a loss there. Yeah, you lose some, you know, fidelity of your personal dream of, you know, being the best at this. But like, if that's your personal dream, you should go and work for one of those vendors who is solving that as a category problem for the world is what I came around to. Yeah, 100%. So that kind of explains the story of how Atlassian came to think about the problem of observability data as like a force multiplier rather than as a we want to build our own and do our end differentiated heavy lifting. What about the coming to approach the problem of observability as something that was maybe distinct from monitoring, mm. distinct from the previous solutions? Yep. Kind of how did that evolution happen? I feel like observability as a concept is kind of, we have a whole bunch of different definitions around it. It's kind of like DevOps almost, where no one has a... Sadly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no one has a concrete definition of what it is. For us, it's the ability to understand or ask new questions from our systems based on what we put in. So based on the telemetry we're kind of throwing, we want to ask new questions, we want to infer new knowledge and things like that. So that's how we define it. I'm sorry if that's not the official official Atlassian definition for those listening. <laughs> you notice that I'm controlling myself and I'm not saying a word. I, I'm here to hear about your experience, Jordan. <laughs> but things have been changing and I think um, as Atlassian has been building out a pretty big SRE capability, um, we've been taking on a lot of the stuff from the community, a lot of the stuff mm -hmm. that kind of Google SRE has worked on in the past as well. So observability has kind of moved away from just, oh, I need to look at this shit when it's broken to how do I use this to constantly make decisions yeah. about what I work on today? How can I be in a constant conversation with the code that I'm shipping every day that my users are using every day? I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. And um, we've kind of built out a whole bunch of really good SLO stuff internally. Mm. Tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to us about SLOs. Like, how did you, what sold you guys on them? And where did you start? Because I think a lot of people are sold that, yeah, this is the future, but I'm over here. Now, how do I get there? I can't say for sure what it is. I, I honestly haven't been around the org long enough to know why that particular decision was made yeah. to double down on SLOs. I do know that we have huge reliability requirements from customers and things like that. And so as part of that, we've had to kind of rethink reliability as moving away from it as this kind of, binary way of thinking about reliability as in like you're either reliable or you're not and right. we're more kind of moving towards this more mature way of thinking about it right and that's something SLOs give us right yeah I love this idea that site reliability engineering is driving demand for service level objectives is driving the desire to be in conversation with code and proactively managing your reliability instead of being reactive yeah I think I listened to your your discussion with Jacob as well recently and and you did kind of talk about not kind of going all in on SLOs and thinking about them as a, the only way to make decisions or treating them as the only metric. Um, right. But I do think they're a really good way of starting conversations about reliability. Yeah. And having that conversation alone is probably enough than kind of saying, oh, we're reliable enough, depending on this one metric. Yeah, it's this interesting dialogue of getting on the same page about what is reliable enough and then how do we manage to that? Yeah, <laughs> it's... It's an interesting place, but it's been good. And in terms of previous orgs that I've kind of worked in the past, this is a lot more mature as a way of thinking. 
Yeah, how do you sell SLOs to engineers? Because I love that you have the whole, you build it, you run it, you know, that whole ownership ethos. Yeah. How do you sell it to engineers? And and because they have to invest some work and some learning to learn about what SLOs are and and to shift, you know, I assume their whole, you know, alerting apparatus over to the new style. Like, how do you approach them and how do you convince them that this is a good idea? It's been a big shift, particularly for a lot of our product engineers who haven't really thought about things in this way. Mm-hmm. I, I do like, though, the mindset that things like SLOs, continuous delivery, um, how we do canaries, et cetera, are all just a way of us to test in production mm-hmm. and understand things in production and kind of moving, telling developers things in that way instead of saying, oh, this is an operational task. It's like, no, it's not an operational task. It is, but at the same time, you test your code before it goes out, but what you don't test is your systems and how I think emergent failures kind of happen in systems because that's not something you can really test for with a unit test or an integration test. Totally. I love that. Thinking of SLOs as a way of testing in production. Like I, I don't think I'd ever heard that said before. That's totally true. It's a way of giving yourself a budget and allowing yourself to experiment within those parameters. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And also to have that safety rail, to know that if you start deviating from those parameters, that's a sign that there's something is wrong. You know how much is too much. And that's a real gift. Yeah, and you can kind of stop testing once you've burned through that error budget that you do have. <laughs> Envelope pushed. I will stop pushing now. <laughs> right, and hopefully you take those lessons and learn them. So I guess that brings us to the next question of how do you kind of bring together the measurement of the serviceable objective and the practice of observability in terms of the data for analysis? Like, are those two things different at a lesson or are they the same? I would say they're more or less the same. The issues I think that we can run into sometimes are things can kind of get bucketed into this kind of too hard basket in terms of how we measure SLOs. And that's something that I think we kind of need to solve for in observability. So how do we make it, particularly data processing is a lot harder to measure in SLOs and availability. Yeah, and, definitely, yeah. definitely. <laughs> yeah, but for definitely for like request response stuff, there are, yeah. it feels like people are starting to find the best practices. Yeah. And there are a lot more robust conversations around it now than previously, which has been great. Yeah. So when you're computing those SLOs, are they driven based off of like request logs? Are they driven based off of tracing? Like how do you think about that uh, kind of mapping of, of SLOs to your telemetry data? We kind of map them based on a lot of things. Like we, we do have our trace data available. Like if, if developers do want to query that for their SLOs, they can. They can kind of pull stuff out of logs if they really want to. So they can pull these metrics out of any kind of store that we use, as to say, and kind of feed that into their SLOs. I, I wouldn't say we necessarily have one way of saying, yes, this is the only way you can measure your SLOs, but it's just making that interface available for the devs. Um, so kind of feeding them into our metrics provider and going from there. So does that answer the question? Yeah, I think it does. So it basically is there is not yet a kind of standardization of that. So you are standardizing upon, you must have SLOs, you must keep SLOs, but here are a variety of ways that you can measure it. Yeah. And here are a variety of ways that you can debug it. Yeah, and the standardization of that stuff is coming. Um, it is stuff that we're currently working on and we do think is important to have. It's just these things take time. The standardization <laughs> of what stuff? So we're kind of... In terms of using or other with building out our new stuff, we're kind of going all in on open telemetry and we're saying, yes, this is the way of 
measuring our our systems and things like that moving forward. So we're we're shipping everything um, using open telemetry and we're standardizing on top of that. What we kind of do as well is we build kind of like our own little SDK on top of that and we say, yes, this will make it easier to do, I guess, as you would say, observability-driven development. Yeah, we think about those things in the open telemetry world as like people's distros, right? Whether it be a distro from a vendor or a distro from a large company that wants to standardize, these are the fields, these are the kinds of automatic instrumentation, right? Like when you get more things out of people's way, right? Like open telemetry stops being this like, you know, pile of widgets that you can assemble anyway, right? And it starts being a little bit more opinionated. Yeah, of course. And there are, I think, Atlassian-specific things that we maybe want to do, but for things which kind of more generally are applicable, um, we do have devs that have been working on kind of contributing back as well, which has been great. Yeah, yeah, that's super, super exciting. Yeah. But you're making a transition kind of away from logging, right, in the course of doing that, right? Like when you're telling people you're going to use open telemetry, you're going to start using tracing data, right, that's open telemetry style. Yeah. What is that replacing? It is replacing, I think, a heavy reliance on logging. And that's something I think that happens everywhere where even debugging an app locally, a dev will just kind of go console log yeah. and kind of... I love this sentence that you that you have. Why are devs so caught up on debugging solely with logs? Talk about that. It's just something that, yeah, I've kind of noticed everywhere and tracing kind of exists as this... It's this fancy new technology that I don't really know anything about. And so they kind of default to just using logging to actually debug stuff. So, so is this just like the, the natural evolution of the fact that everyone starts with like printf and console.log and like this is just what we learn? It's like we learn to leave notes for ourselves while we're developing code, right? We leave these little notes for ourselves sprinkled in anywhere and everywhere that make almost no sense to anyone else who's coming along after trying to understand this code. And it's so randomly emitted too. Like if you accidentally put something inside a loop, you're just like, X value is count, blah, 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 and you're spamming yourself and then you take down your entire logs cluster, right? And there's been no real rhyme or there's been no method to this madness, which is why I feel like the shift to observability, like at its core, I would say that observability is based fundamentally on the arbitrarily wide structured data blob, one request per hop per service, where you just pack all that context in, but there's only one, right? You get wider, not deeper, right? Because, I mean, there are so many reasons. It's cheaper, it's, you know, it's effectively free to just stash more key value pairs on this blob, but it allows you to keep all that context together oriented around the user's experience, right? Hmm. But I would say that to Jordan's devs, right? Jordan's devs are used to this idea that a printf is free, right? That it's cognitively free to them to right. put printf in their code. Right. Yep. But it's not because every time you emit one, you're creating a network hop and, you know, you're creating a TCP IP connection. You know, the handshake is incredibly expensive at scale. And all of those things are disconnected unless you attach, you know, a request ID to each of them or a trace ID to each of them. Then you could get into a space where you can reconstitute it after the fact. But that's a lot of extra work when, in fact, if you just kept that as one blob, then all of a sudden you can cross correlate and you can go, oh, all of the requests that were an error that looked like this also had that, that, and that. And it's just, it blows people's minds. Like, it's like a sea change. Like, it's no longer a log. It's a unit of telemetry. Yeah. And I think that, for me, kind of working with some of our new tooling has been a big kind of eye-opener. And you're kind of moving away from other vendor SDKs as well, as well, by doing that, which 
do still kind of depend on you doing the little bits and pieces all over the place and then reconstituting the data, as you said, but yeah. Right, right. Like that kind of, you know, you just have to correlate things into one white event, right? Like that just is doing a lot of work. Because previous to open telemetry, it was hard to kind of aggregate all these things into one span and collect all that context together, right? You were forced to kind of emit multiple printouts. Yeah. But it does make kind of a nice bridge because once you've done that work to aggregate the middle, then you can use grep. You can use all of the command line stuff that you're used to using with logs. If you just get used to like stashing that value into the blob instead of outputting that value to, you know, the console, it's such a small thing, but it's such a huge thing. Yeah, for sure. And the next step is kind of making it easier to do that or making it part of the dev flow. Right. And this is what I think observability teams at large companies like your own are so well positioned to do, right? You sit between 5,000 engineers and the tool, and that means that you can look for opportunities to like reduce, reuse, recycle, you know, to do things just once, to to normalize, to, to make things automatic, to make things magical, to make things feel the same. And I think an underappreciated thing here is making it so that when you switch from team to team, you still feel oriented. Like you still know what's going on. You know where to look. You know what the values mean. You know where in the tool to go look. You know, I feel like this is this huge tax that so many companies have. It's like, it feels like you're changing jobs when you shift from one team to the other. And so people stay on that team for way too long. And I feel like you should only really stay on a team for like two or three years. And it's good for the organization to move people around. It's good for you to move around. It's good. It keeps your brain like fresh and learning new things. But companies that have haven't invested in in this dev tooling layer that is really, really difficult. Yeah, and kind of looking at what Atlassian has built out in that space um, with our deployment tooling, we have, I think, more or less entirely standardized on the deployment process for devs or the deployment tooling for devs. Um, mm. So in a way, it does make it a lot easier for them to move around, apart from teams wanting to use different libraries for whatever reason. And if, even if you're not moving around, like you have to debug for the entire system, right? Like you don't just get to debug your little service. You need to hop around and be able to comprehend the entire stack. Yeah. I worry that, right, like the problem that Jordan is defining here is that the problem has been solved for CICD, right? Like everyone uses the same tooling. What I'm not hearing is that people have yet fully migrated from, you know, using printf debugging or using like a certain vendor's framework as opposed to we are using open telemetry, we are using attributes, right? Like I, I don't hear that yet. Yep. Hmm. Like what are the kinds of the blockers? What are the barriers that you're seeing? I think one barrier is probably I'm still kind of young. And for me to kind of come into the older engineers in the org and say, well, well, you've been doing this wrong the whole time. Let me tell you how to do this a bit better is a hard discussion to have. And we do have older engineers in the team too, which try to push this forward. But, yeah, but it's not about that. It's about we're constantly <laughs> learning and shifting as an industry. Like yeah. we're all learning yeah, new course. things from time to time. It's not that we've done any, something wrong in the past. It's that, holy shit, like the best practices have evolved. Yeah. And we are kind of pushing for that. Like the stuff that we're building out now, yes, we do kind of leverage open telemetry as much as possible. And that's the direction that we want to head towards and sell the developers on. But stuff at the moment is just really kind of telling them, well, you don't actually need to do all this. We can make this a lot easier for you. But the, the issues you kind of run into are, oh, but this is something I'm most comfortable with. And so there's a big kind of learning piece there. 
I think that we probably should invest in a bit more. Yeah, and I think part of what my role as a open telemetry developer is, is to make it feel as natural as possible to your developers, yep. right? So that it's as easy as possible rather than being kind of this high bar of you must be this good at tracing to use open telemetry. We're not there yet. We will be. <laughs> yeah, it's all happening. We're not there yet, but yeah, it's in progress. What sort of time frame are you looking at for this? Like, are you looking at doing this in the next six months, 12 months, or is it going to be a transition that takes several years to accomplish to get people off of logs and into more structured events? I can probably say it will take a while, longer than 12 months. We're onboarding teams kind of one at a time. And, and what we're trying to do as best we can is to kind of get their feedback on kind of what we've built so far. And as we bring them on, we say, cool, you're doing everything this new way is it useful to you yet? And these are the kind of conversations we want to have with them and say, yes. Like, how much better can you understand your systems? And based on that feedback, we go we go back, we, we fix things up, and, and we come back and kind of do the same thing. Mm, I love that. Not trying to roll out to your entire org at once, but instead thinking about how do you iterate with individual teams and get each team strongly bought in. Yeah. I think in a lot of that ways that goes back to kind of that first question that we asked you, which was about how you introduce new concepts to an org, right? Like it's that kind of champion perspective. Yeah. Like except for your internal team selling to your other internal teams. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it's working. What are some of the kind of benefits that you've seen? You mentioned that CD is ubiquitous at Atlassian, that everyone does it, everyone does it the same way. Like kind of how often are you shipping and how has that kind of accelerated your flywheel? How often are we shipping? In terms of team-wise at Atlassian? Yeah. How often does each team ship these days? Oh, I would probably say easily multiple times a day. Um, we have a lot of team shipping multiple times a day. Some, it, it really depends on a per-team basis. Most products, I would say, we do ship multiple times a day or at least once a day. And we, we still do have, I think, regulatory concerns in the org. So we do have to make sure that, yes, things are being done properly, but that's all kind of automated and we build that into our, our actual process. So... You bring it all left, you make it easier to do the thing that you're meant to do instead of running around getting permission to do a whole bunch of things. Right. No one likes having to ask someone for permission to push the button. No, no. one likes having their change rolled back because it got bundled in with five other changes. This is something that like Charity's been on our case recently about because we've started to cross that threshold of like a individual build is now bundling more than one commit and it's a little scary to us because we're used to being able to move fast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think that there are many teams moving too slowly. I think infrastructure-wise or platform tooling will always be a bit slower, but product teams, yeah, they're shipping all the time. <laughs> and do you think, uh, you're the observability team, do you think of yourself as a platform as a, or as a product team when it comes to velocity? I don't know how to answer this, mostly because I don't know if I've properly had that discussion with our head of observability until now. I would like to see ourselves as a platform team, it doesn't matter really what's under the hood, but we do want to give devs an easy interface or an easy way to work with our observability tooling. And that's the stuff we're actually investing in building out as a platform, I guess, if you will. Yeah, not so much a product. Um, I think we probably have done a bit of product-centric things in the past, um, but it really doesn't work when you just kind of build out a product and you say, here you go, here's this thing, good luck. We kind of want to do a bit of the extra heavy lifting for them and make it easier to work with with the products, I guess, under the hood. Mm -hmm. Have developers kind of had any uh, hesitation about kind of adoption of like, oh my God, like if I write the wrong thing in as a tag, it might blow up my expenditure, right? Like, or it might cause the system to get slow. Like, has that 
been a barrier to, to adoption or is that something that you've been able to kind of change expectations and say, you know what, it's okay to have high cardinality now? I don't think the developers themselves are necessarily worried about high cardinality. It's always been my team <laughs> kind of handling all these infrastructure who is like, oh, shit, this is going to get expensive real fast. Um, but the developers, that's something they actually want. They want the high cardinality. They want to be able to kind of tie particular events to something that happened and, and work out exactly what it was based on, I think, the high cardinality data that they kind of ship. I, I wouldn't really say it's been a concern for them to worry too much about it. But yeah. We want to make sure it's not moving forward either. Yeah, and I guess that kind of makes sense, right? That the high cardinality data is often the concepts that developers want to relate to, right? Like user IDs, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, which country, which user agent, that those are things that are familiar to developers that they want to be able to deal in. Yeah, and, and that's kind of what they rely on doing at the moment. With some of the tracing stuff we do, like if we are sampling things, developers won't always be too happy with it. So let's say support's working on a particular case or something and a, and a user's complaining about something breaking on their end. To be able to trace exactly what's happening to that one user is something the developers really want. And when you kind of start sampling, it gets a bit harder. They want kind of, I want to see everything is the kind of mindset that we have at the moment, which is great, but also expensive. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that problem is definitely a super interesting one. We've been thinking about it a lot recently at Honeycomb, and it's kind of, right, like it's this thing where everyone wants to have, you know, all the cheap, the cheapest possible storage and also the highest fidelity data, and at the same time, right, like, you don't get there without like hard work, right? Like the way that you get there has to involve dynamic sampling. It has to involve being able to turn up the tracing for that one user, right? Like and yeah. say like, go do it again, right? Yeah, and that's something we're keeping in mind. I think where with everything that we're building out, that's something we want to do. That's something we want to say, yes, assume safe defaults, kind of sample our users by default, but if they want more or if they're in an incident or whatever it is, we want to be able to kind of, for them to be able to turn it up themselves, more of like a self-service thing on our end. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much for joining us, Jordan. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I definitely learned a lot. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today. That's right. Thanks for having me. It's really great to chat with you. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed, and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.